Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. So this morning, I want to start off by talking to you about the difference between myths, legends, and history. Okay, myth, legend, and history. So Shay's going to throw up a slide of uh, Paul Bunyan. Okay, you guys know Paul Bunyan? Okay, this is Paul Bunyan, famous American folklore. Also, that's what I think I look like. Uh, That's what I see when I picture myself, Paul Bunyan. Paul Bunyan was 63 axe handles high. That's how tall he was. They measured him in axe handles. He was 63 axe handles high. Took six storks to deliver Paul Bunyan when he was born. You know what town Paul Bunyan was from? No one does. Because the the myth says he was from our town. Kind of like a, you know, once upon a time in a land far away. It's it's vague. It's not specific. Do you know what year he was born? No, because the six storks that delivered him didn't tell us when he was born. Paul Bunyan had a, an ox, babe, the big blue ox. And when Paul Bunyan uh, walked through a snowstorm, his footprints were so big that when the snow melted, the, they formed lakes, and that's where the 10,000 lakes in Minnesota came from. Science! You know, uh, when Paul Bunyan had a bad day and he drug his ox behind him, it left a, uh, uh, a, a scar in the earth that we now call the Grand Canyon. Yeah, that's how these things happen. Did you know that? Paul and Babe the Big Blue Ox used to like to wrestle, and when they wrestled, uh, Paul would pick up Babe and throw him, and it would stir up dust, and there'd be rocks everywhere, and that's how the Rocky Mountains uh, were created. Paul was picking up Babe and throwing him around. You guys knew all this, right? That's where these things came from. Well, I, <laughs> I hate to br- break it to you, but Paul Bunyan is not real. I know that uh, you know if you went to public school, you might not know that, but, but uh, like me, <laughs> Paul Bunyan is a myth. A myth is a made-up story that explains how something came into being. This is like all of the Greek myths that you might have learned in junior high and high school about Zeus and Hermes. Where does lightning come from? Zeus. You know, that, that was how Greek people in Jesus' day understood religion. It was mythical. And so the, the myth of Zeus, the myth of Aphrodite, the myth of Hermes, the myth of Pegasus, uh, and so uh, who's the guy that flew too close to the sun? That is Pegasus, I th- uh, Icarus, yeah, Icarus flew too close to the sun. So those are myths. Zeus isn't a real man that lived. He's a myth. Paul Bunyan is a myth. A myth is different than a legend. If she's going to throw up the next slide uh, of John Henry. This is John Henry. This is what Shay thinks he looks like. (laughs) Self-awareness is a good thing. 
So John Henry, the steel driving man, that was his nickname. And I don't know if you remember. I remember like seventh, eighth grade, you know, learning about myths and legends. John Henry worked on a railroad, sang all these railroad working songs. He motivated the workers. And when they tried to replace uh, the, the workers with automation, with a steel, uh, a steam-powered engine that could drive railroad stakes more efficiently and faster, John Henry challenged the steam-powered engine, and he won. But he died. At the, as soon as he beat the engine, he died from exhaustion. Now, John Henry is not a myth. He really lived. But he didn't outwork a steam engine. A legend is based on a real person, but it exaggerates their accomplishments. John Henry was actually born in 1847 in New Jersey. He fought in the, <laughs> he fought in the Civil War for the Union, for the North. He was a real guy. He actually did work on railroads in western Pennsylvania, Virginia, that area, uh, Ohio. So John Henry was real, but the stories of his life are exaggerated. We call that a legend. Another legend would be, you know, George Washington, how he chopped down that cherry tree and his father confronted him and he said, I cannot tell a lie. Well, George Washington was a real person, but that story about the cherry tree probably never happened. There's no historical record of it. It was put in the fifth, of a, fifth edition of a biography uh, of George Washington. It's, that's probably a legend. So a myth are made-up stories about fake people that explain how something got started. A legend is about a real person, but the story has been exaggerated. Then there's history. If you can throw up the last slide for me, uh, Shay. This last side slide is Neil Armstrong, okay? Neil Armstrong was born in 1930 in Ohio. He's a real person. What's he famous for? First person to walk on the moon, right? Neil Armstrong is not a myth. Neil Armstrong is not a legend. Neil Armstrong walking on the moon is just history, Right? This happened. It's not exaggerated. What, what he's known for is a historical fact. So, you have a myth, Paul Bunyan. You have legend, John Henry, really lived, but the stories are exaggerated. And you have Neil Armstrong, historical figure. What we want to talk about today is which of those three categories is Jesus' resurrection in? Is Jesus' resurrection a myth you know, something that never happened to a person that never really existed. It's a story that Christians made up to explain why they celebrate Easter. Or is Jesus' resurrection a legend? Well, Jesus was a real person, but the story of his resurrection is an exaggeration. Or is Jesus' resurrection historical? He really lived, and this happened just as much as Neil Armstrong walking on the moon, September 11th, and the Eagles beating the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Historical events that no one can deny. So that's, that's what we're going to look at today. is the story of Jesus' a resur uh, Jesus's resurrection, a fabricated myth, an exaggerated legend, or an authentic historical event. 
Paul is addressing this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because one of the issues that existed in the church in Corinth was there were people in the church that didn't believe in resurrection. You know, if you grew up Jewish, resurrection was already in your mind because the Old Testament talked about resurrection. The thing about the church in Corinth is most of them weren't Jewish. They were Greek. They were, you know, uh, Gentiles, pagan. Their concept of resurrection was like, yeah, that's, that's too crazy. You're asking me to believe too much. And Paul spends an entire chapter, chapter 15, explaining to them, listen, if you don't believe in resurrection, then you don't believe that Jesus defeated death. And if you don't believe Jesus defeated death, what is this all about? And a a belief in the resurrection, not only of Jesus, but also resurrection in general, is essential to the Christian faith. And Paul makes this argument. So as we, I'm going to read through 1 Corinthians 15, the first 19 verses in a moment, but as I do... Uh, Listen, I want you to ask yourself, is Paul trying to create a myth or is he reporting an event? Is he creating a, a tall tale or is he acting like a news reporter who's giving you the details? Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 19, you can listen to this while I read or you can follow along on the screen. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remained until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain." But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, We are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I said earlier that one of the issues of the church in Corinth is many of them just didn't believe in resurrection in general. Not not just Jesus' resurrection, they didn't believe in any resurrection. Uh, Especially that resurrection carried with it a physical body. So I want to explain resurrection really quickly, or the Jewish concept of resurrection. Um, We have, in our culture, lots of ideas. We believe when you die, people turn into ghosts or angels, or they can haunt you, things like that. The Jewish idea of resurrection is that resurrection brought with it a physical body. You didn't turn into a ghost or an angel. 
You stayed a human being, but you were perfected and you had a physical body. And that's one of the important things for us to understand about Jesus' resurrection. There's a physical element to it. He didn't turn into a, a floating spirit. He had a body. Remember, Thomas touched him. He put his his finger into the wounds that Jesus had. Jesus had a resurrection carries with it the body also. Uh, it is not a biblical idea that the body is evil, the soul is good. That's a Socrates, Plato, Aristotle idea. Jesus taught that everything God created is good. And so you can uh, treat your body like a temple of the Holy Spirit. So uh, resurrection had a physical element, and Jewish people also believed that in, in a future resurrection, but they believed it would happen to everybody at once. That all of those who were in relationship with Yahweh would be resurrected at once. The idea of one man being resurrected by himself, Jesus, they hadn't thought of that. And so that's the Jewish idea, but the Greek people didn't believe in resurrection at all. This just seemed like too much, too hard to believe. And so the the Greek people in the church in Corinth were like, I don't believe in resurrection. I don't believe we're going to be resurrected. I don't believe that's a thing. I don't believe it happens. And, and Paul says, well, if you don't believe in resurrection, what do you believe about Jesus? If you don't believe resurrection is possible. See, verse 12 actually says, he's, he tells us the issue he's dealing with. How does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He says in verse 12. He's saying, like, some of you guys don't even believe in resurrection. But then if you don't believe in resurrection, you don't believe Jesus was resurrected. And if you don't believe Jesus is resurrected, how do you think you're saved? How did he defeat sin? How did he defeat death? Like You're kind of undercutting the whole faith here. So Paul's correcting them, and he's addressing this issue, and he really breaks his argument into two sections. He spends the first part of the argument explaining to them that the resurrection is historical. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. See, these Greek people that didn't believe in resurrection, what did they believe in? Myths. Zeus. Hermes. All these Greek gods, they believed in myths. So they might have thought Jesus was a myth. Paul's like, no, let me just set that straight. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's history. So the first part of his argument is that the resurrection is historical. The second part of his argument is the resurrection is essential. This isn't some secondary or tertiary Christian doctrine that take or leave. You actually need this. I mean, Paul later says in Romans, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, Christ, uh, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, right? So Paul sees this as essential for salvation. This is necessary. So we're going to look at these two points, that the resurrection is historical and that the resurrection is essential. Verses 3 through 8 are where Paul makes the argument that the resurrection is historical. It is a, is a fact. It is an event that happened in history, it is not a myth or it is not a legend. Let's start in verses three and four. Paul identifies some first things. He says, I delivered you as of first importance. Okay, first importance means like, it's like his way of saying, hey, first things first, let's get these straight. Four things, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. In that list, he died. That's a historical event, right? I mean, that's not a myth. I mean, Bart Ehrman, who was an atheist historian, says this. 
The resurrection, uh, the crucifixion of Jesus is the most documented historical event in the history of humanity. I mean, there's an atheist who concedes, like, Jesus really existed. He really was crucified. He really did die. Now, Bart Ehrman doesn't believe in the resurrection, but he's like, we can't deny that Jesus lived and was crucified. So Jesus' death is a historical event. Jesus' burial is a historical event. So Paul's argument continues. We're talking about history here. We're talking about events that really happened, his death, his burial, and then he goes on to his resurrection, and then finally he appeared. So Paul's argument is, it doesn't sound like a myth to me. It sounds like he's saying, hey, these all happened, right? This really was a true thing. This, was, this took place. He refers to the resurrection the same way he refers to other historical events like the death and burial. Also, Paul refers to what's happening in the Gospels, and this is what I preached on Easter Sunday from Matthew 28, and I've said it then and I've said it a couple times. You know, the story in Matthew 28 reads more like a police report than a fairy tale. You know, I I mean, one year, just to see how this would work, I actually got a, a, a blank police report from the Philadelphia Police Department, and I filled it out based on the details of the resurrection. I was able to give a date, a time, a location, and the name of eyewitnesses. That's enough for the police to take it seriously. I mean, not our police, but some police to take it seriously. (laughs) I mean, that's enough to start an investigation. That ain't no fairy tale. This isn't once upon a time in a place far, far away. I'll just read really quickly. the. (laughs) It's, It's one verse in Matthew 28. This is, they're starting this like it's a fact. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, so after the Sabbath, so we know the day of the week, it's it's Sunday, as it began to dawn, now we know the time, that's about 6 a.m., I mean, Passover in Israel, the sun rises at 6.09 a.m., at least this year it did, so we're talking around 6 a.m., so we have a date and we have a time. Uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So we have eyewitnesses, Mary the mother of Jesus and Mary the mother of James, and then we have a location which is the tomb, and we know the tomb that Jesus was buried in, uh, it was the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. This is a public thing. Joseph had to go get uh, permission to bury Jesus there from the governor. There, There would be a paperwork, a paper trail to prove all of this. This is not being hidden. This is not being vague. This is not being mystical. It happened this day, at this time, at this place, and here are the eyewitnesses that you can go interview, right? I mean, this is like a police report. This is not like a fairy tale. In addition, uh, back to what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 15, if Mary and Mary aren't enough eyewitnesses, Paul lists 520 eyewitnesses. Now, a bulk of those are one group of 500, but Paul lists Peter, or he's called Cephas here in verse 5, Jesus appeared to Peter, then to the 12. It's interesting or it's important that Peter is listed as one of the eyewitnesses because Peter went to his death defending that he saw Jesus alive. You know, when people make up stories, they don't die for a lie, right? If you, if you put enough pressure on them, they crack, right? In 64 AD, Peter was killed by Nero when he was crucified upside down. Just 29 years after Jesus' resurrection, Peter would not back off of this. It cost him his life. To me, that lends credibility. 
to the life of Peter, that he would not back down from this. He was willing to lose his life over his testimony that Jesus was resurrected. Paul continues that after Jesus appeared to Peter, it says he appeared uh, to the 12, the disciples. Actually, many of the disciples suffered the same way Peter did. All of them except John were killed for their testimony about Jesus, which in a moment I'll talk about motive. What would motivate them then? If if they're all lying, tell me you can put 12 people in a room that are all lying together and not one of them cracks. You know what I mean? Like all you gotta do is separate them, put a little pressure on them. This is something that I used to do as a youth pastor. Uh, You know. Not everyone has toenails now and that's fine. But the disciples, you know, it's a dozen of them and not, not one of them cracked, not one of them recanted, not one of them caved. James, the apostle James, who's a different James than the James mentioned in this passage, was beheaded in AD 44 for his testimony of Jesus. So he's, and it's also helpful that he mentions the, the 12 because we know who those 12 people are. Go ask them. Here's their names. It's not, oh, someone told me, second hand. Here are their names. Go ask them. Verse 6, it says, After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. So there's this big group appearance, right? 500 people saw Jesus alive. And wouldn't it be convenient if all 500 of those people were dead? But Paul says, no, actually, most of them are alive, which is his way of saying, go ask them. If they're still alive, that tells us two things. Paul had great confidence that if you went and pulled any of these 500 people, that they would testify, I did see Jesus alive after he died. The second thing it tells us is, Paul's writing this very, very shortly after the resurrection. I mean, less than a generation. Because if most of the eyewitnesses are still alive, not a lot of time has passed. This is 20, 25 years after the resurrection. And so these are eyewitnesses. Paul's saying, hey, go ask them. If you don't believe me, go ask them. You know Peter, you know James, you know some of these 500. Go ask them and chase this down for yourself. You can corroborate the, uh, the story. Now he mentions also in verse seven, Jesus appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So this James that is mentioned here is not James the disciple, James, uh, son of Zebedee, brother of John. This is a different James. Not James, the brother of John. This is James, the brother of Jesus. Jesus, I mentioned last week, Jesus had a brother named Jude who didn't believe in him until the resurrection. He had another brother named James who also, there's no record of James, Jesus' brother, following Jesus until after the resurrection. James didn't believe in Jesus beforehand. And I, that would be hard, you know? You share a bunk bed with a, with a guy who, like, is never wrong. <laughs> He's always nice. He's always correcting you. I'd have a hard time with that. But after the resurrection, James begins to follow Jesus. That, to me, is cre- that's credibility. His own brothers, James and Jude and his mom, Mary, all followed him. James went on to write a book of the Bible called James. That book of the Bible, uh, next time you read the book of the James, uh, the book of James, <laughs> the book of the James. Next time you read the book of James, 
Keep in the back of your head, this is Jesus' brother writing this. It, get, it, it adds a little oomph to James when you realize James saw Jesus do all the things in this book. James witnessed Jesus, his brother, doing this. And James didn't follow Jesus until after he saw Jesus resurrected. I guess at that point, you got to follow him, right? <laughs> all right, brother. You know, mom was real upset about your death, but here you are. I, I'm going to follow you. And Jude joins him as well. So James, Jesus' brother, and then Paul makes this kind of personal. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, Jesus appeared to Paul maybe five years after the resurrection. This is interesting. Jesus appeared to Paul after the ascension in Roman, uh, Acts chapter 9. Paul is actually, he goes by a different name at this point. He goes by the name Saul. He's on his way to Jerusalem to go arrest and kill Christians. He's on a donkey on a road into the city of Damascus, which is in modern-day Syria, and he sees a blinding light, and he falls off of his donkey. He goes blind. He hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Which is his encounter with Jesus. And he's blind for several days when a Christian comes along and prays for him, and something like scales falls off of his eye, eyes, and then who went by the name of Saul goes now by the name of Paul. He becomes the great apostle Paul. The original persecutor of Christians became the one who wrote most of the New Testament. The calling on Paul's life almost in a way didn't change because you know how the gospel got out in the, in the first five chapters of Acts? The gospel got out because they were running from Paul or Saul. He went by Saul. He would come to a city and persecute them, and they were like, I'm out of here, and they would go to another town. When, they, when he persecuted them in Jerusalem, they went to Antioch and took the gospel there. Then he has his own conversion experience, and what happens? He continues. Now he's the one taking the message to different towns. God used him one way or the other. Even when he was in rebellion, he was still used to spread the gospel, to scatter the church. So you have... Peter, James, Paul, the 500, the disciples, all of these are eyewitnesses. It's 520 different people at least. You have to ask about their motive. If someone's going to concoct a, a scheme, there's got to be a motive, right? What would their motive be? Was it to get money? It didn't work. This is the worst money-making scheme in history because they all died. Poor. Was it to get power? I don't know. There was never a governor, Peter, President Paul. There, I mean, they didn't get money or power. All that this brought to them was suffering, but they stuck with it. To me, that indicates that they were really convinced. They saw Jesus. So Paul is explaining to the church in Corinth, this is a historical event, folks. This isn't something I'm making up. This really happened. It changed my life. And then he goes on to make a second point that the resurrection is not just historical, it's essential. This is in verses 12 through 19 primarily. But in verse 3, remember, he did say, I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised. So in Paul's mind, the resurrection of Jesus is one of those four things that he calls of first importance. It's the death, burial, resurrection, and appearance of Jesus. He calls those of first importance. So he sees this as essential. In verse 14, 
Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is vain. That word vain means it's empty, it's devoid of truth. Christianity without the resurrection is meaningless. It's empty. There's no truth in it. It's actually built on a lie. Christianity, if there's no resurrection, is built on a falsehood. There's no spiritual power to it. It just becomes a philosophy. It becomes a perspective. But it doesn't become ultimately true without a resurrection. He says in verse 15, and I already hinted at this, Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ whom he didn't raise if in fact the dead are not raised. So he's saying if there's no resurrection, but we go around telling people God raised Jesus from the dead, that makes us liars. And now we're lying about God. He's putting it all out there. This is dangerous business to him. We don't want to lie about God, so if I'm saying this, I obviously mean it. Verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. To be worthless is to be useless and devoid of power. Without the resurrection, Christianity is worthless. Without the resurrection, you're, you're still in sin. You and I both. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we, ain't, we aren't saved from anything. We're just deceived. We have empty false hope without resurrection. And so Paul is saying here, this is important. This, the whole idea or concept of Christianity is built on resurrection. And then in verse 19, he says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Christianity without the resurrection is pitiful. People should feel bad for us because we're just going to be disappointed when we're not resurrected at some point because we don't believe in the, if the resurrection is not real. Now, around the same time that Paul was writing this, shortly after, there's a Jewish historian, I quote him every year around this time, I always go to Josephus. But there's more than just Josephus. There's at least 15 of these references in various ancient historians. But I just go to Josephus the most. There's a Jewish historian, not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus. He was like one of the official historians of the Roman Empire. They paid him to write history, to investigate history, and to write it. Josephus wrote this in AD 93, 60 years after Jesus' resurrection. He said, about this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared restored to life. And the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. This is in Josephus' book called Antiquities. Josephus in this says Jesus appeared after the third day. He was the Christ. It's so incredible. Many people think that Christians stole Josephus' work and wrote that part in. It's called an interpolation. It's like, no, you took Josephus' stuff and inserted that. There's no way he would have said that. That's one of the theories. The problem is there's zero copies of Josephus' writing that don't include that. 
I, you know, John McManus found an ancient Josephus manuscript behind his dresser one day. <laughs> he, I don't think he's watching this, so I'm going to get away with that. There is no ancient Josephus manuscript anywhere that doesn't say this about Jesus. So those that think Christians wrote this are just slinging one up against the wall in the dark. They don't... They think it might have happened, but all the evidence is every ancient copy of Josephus says this. Why does this matter? It matters because it's foundational to our faith. I want you to understand, because this is something that you're going to maybe be confronted with, and maybe you've already been confronted with. Christianity is not a myth. Jesus' resurrection is not a legend. Listen to me. You are going to hear, you're going to read, watch on YouTube, hear people say, Jesus wasn't really resurrected. I want you to know that there's a strong historical basis for the belief that Jesus was resurrected. And it is even starting to sneak in. So people that are theologically liberal, I'm not talking about political, liberal, or conservative, I'm talking about theology. People that are theologically liberal have no idea throwing the resurrection out. They just don't believe in the supernatural. They think it's crazy, so most of Christianity is just moral teachings. You know, even Bart Ehrman, who is an atheist historian, says, I don't believe in the resurrection, but I do believe you should love your neighbor. And so because of that, I follow the, follow the moral teachings of Jesus. Even theologically conservative people, are you might hear them say, yeah, the story of Jesus, you know, it's a legend. I don't believe necessarily in the crucifixion and the resurrection, but I think going to church is a good thing. I think having Christian values is still beneficial for society. So I've heard this recently from people like Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, some of these kind of conservative commentators. I don't believe in the resurrection, but Christianity is still useful is what they'll say. But here's what the Apostle Paul said. Without the resurrection, Christianity is useless. You understand? This is a subtle way that is taking us away from the resurrection because people who we might even agree with on certain social things are undermining the resurrection. Christianity is not useful for its moral ideas. Christianity is not useful because it makes us all better citizens. Christianity is only useful in so much as the resurrection is real and it is a release of power into the universe for victory over death. That's where Christianity gets its power. So when you hear people saying, well, even without the resurrection, Christianity has some good ideas, Paul would never say that. He would say, no, it's a lie. We're lying about God without the resurrection. Uh, the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible says this, without Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the gospel is not good news, since sinners would not be saved. The Christian faith serves no purpose without Jesus' resurrection and thus provides no salvation. People who think of themselves as Christians have an incoherent faith if they do not accept Jesus' resurrection as a historical fact. Listen, if you've been going to church your whole life, think you're a good person, have a vaguely Christian worldview, but you doubt 
the historical reliability of the resurrection, you got to start dealing with that. Listen, I get doubts. I've had doubts about things in my life. I understand doubts. What I don't understand is letting the doubts linger for a year, two years, three years. If you have doubts, skip lunch and get those doubts solved. Do some research. Find a book. Ask a question. You know what I mean? Like, I get doubts. What I don't get is why we let doubts linger when there's information out there that would resolve those doubts. This week, one of my suggested questions to your discipleship groups is like, what do you need to learn then? If you have doubts about the resurrection, okay, that's fine. What do you need to hear? What do you need to look at? What do you need to study so that you don't have to have these doubts anymore? This is also necessary. It's not just necessary so we can be convinced in our mind, but the resurrection is actually, like I said, the release of power for victory over death and sin. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus' resurrection is our hope. Because Jesus was resurrected, I expect to be resurrected someday. And you should expect to be resurrected someday. You're going to live again. We live in a broken, sorrowful, depressing world. And the older I get, the more, and I'm not that old, but the older I get, the more I'm faced with mortality. It gives me hope to know that there's going to be a resurrection someday. In the meantime, do you know why we can trust for divine healing? Because of the death and resurrection. That's why we can pray for people to be healed. It also says right here in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, who is that? That's the Holy Spirit. If the spirit that brought Jesus to life lives in you, he will give life to your mortal bodies. This is not divine healing. This is divine health. This is not recovering from sickness. It's staying healthy in the first place. You know what I'm saying? This is divine health. This is, this is forgiving people because you know that unforgiveness has an impact on your body. This is trusting God because you know anxiety raises your blood pressure. Know what I mean? This is avoiding substances because you know that substances will kill you. Certain substances, not chicken wings, but others. Chicken wings are part of God's plan for divine health. I live under the shadow of his wings. This whole sermon was to get to that joke. <laughs> Listen, the resurrection is not just some future thing. It's for today. You can access the, the same spirit that raised Jesus lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus. You have access to all the power that made Jesus wake up in the grave. And it can make you wake up in the morning. And it can give you life. It can remove your stress. It can deal with issues in your body. But it's, that's only if the resurrection is true. If the resurrection is false, I guess grow old, decay, and die with no hope. That's the plan. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and they're going to lead us in a song. But 
I really want to challenge you, you know, if, if, you, if you're convinced, you've already made up your mind, the resurrection is real, it's not a myth, it's not a legend, it's history, then begin to trust that the same spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead is in you and can give life to your mortal bodies. But if you're not convinced of that, this week you need to do some research, dig into that then. Don't let doubt linger any longer than it needs to. I, I, I get that doubt exists, but you don't have to stay in doubt. And I would love to talk to you about books you can read, resources, lectures you can listen to, whatever you need to get to the bottom of this so you can be convinced yourself about the reality of Jesus' resurrection. So I'm going to pray for us and the team's going to lead us in a final song. Jesus, it seems so clear. I mean, the, the authors of the New Testament, Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, all wanted us to understand that you really really did come back from the dead. This is not Paul Bunyan stuff. This is not John Henry stuff. This is real. This is history. We don't have to view things like history as uh, um, mutually exclusive from our faith, that our faith is built on a real event that happened. So Jesus, convince us of this. Help us, Lord, to live in divine health, to access divine healing, and also, Lord, to live in hope of a future resurrection. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.